Welcome to Days in the Wild Big Game Hunting Podcast. I'm going into my 15th year of podcasting. Can't believe it's been that long. Um, I want to thank you all for helping me keep this fresh and staying motivated to bring you new content, etc. It hasn't been easy, but uh, it helps me fuel my own passion for hunting. Uh, Speaking of helping me keep this going, please go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags and use promo code John Stallone, all one word, to save 20%. And lastly, if you could, go to Howl for Wildlife and become a member. Um, We have partnered with Go Hunt. So now you could get your cake and eat it too. What what do I mean by this? Well, you can go to Go Hunt and uh, if you look at their Insider full subscription, it's $149. And, you know, with the Insider, you get the explorer as well so we have both packages but um explorer is is their mapping software and it's completely dedicated just to hunting you know it's got the public and private land boundaries offline maps 3d point tracker um and all the western it's like the all the western states are included it's a it's a great tool so you get that plus with the insider you get the advanced filtering and search tools, industry-leading uh, draw odds, uh, unit profiles, and uh, easy-to-read state regulation overviews and species profiles and expert insights and all this exclusive content plus monthly giveaways. So the Go Hunt um, Insider subscription is an awesome deal, right? But it's $149 a year, and... If you've been on the fence and didn't know you, if you wanted to uh, spend that $149, let me tell you, it's really worth it. But we're going to make it even sexier for you because if you come to Howlful Wildlife's site and you go to our our membership profile uh, portal and purchase a Insider or a Explorer package, you not only get a free subscription to go hunt and get all those awesome benefits that we talked about, but you get all the benefits of becoming a Howlful Wildlife member. And that includes our discounts with our partners, uh, 20% or more with our partners. Um, You are automatically included in in the Howlful Wildlife giveaway, monthly giveaways for gear and, um, hunt giveaways for the year plus as a 501c3 your part a portion of your uh, membership is tax deductible and you're helping out a great cause Halfa wildlife is out there uh, advocating for the hunter and helping educate the non-hunting public so that uh, we can keep doing this for for perpetuity here, and so that our kids and our grandkids can enjoy it. And uh, it's a really great system, and we're super thankful that uh, Go Hunt jumped on board with us. And um, it's a great way to support Halfa Wildlife. It's a great way to get awesome tools that you will use. I use Go Hunt Insider all the time. I've been a member for a very long time, and it's how I get a lot of my tags by doing the research through there. And now you're getting extra extra stuff with it. So it's a great, great system. So go check it out. Become a member today. 
and uh, let's roll into this next episode. Thanks. Today, uh, we are going to talk to Jean-Paul Bourgeois. We are, uh, he's a chef. We are, and uh, you, you're kind of, you're part of the Meat Eater gang too, aren't you? That's right, man. Well, That's, thanks yeah. for having me, and yeah. uh, thanks, uh, thanks to everybody who's listening. Yeah, so I am a contributor to Meat Eater, um, and, um, you know, uh, I grew up waterfowl hunting all my life. Uh, I still predominantly waterfowl hunt, and, uh, you know, over the 60 days of duck season, not including – uh, a conservation at the end and teal season in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm pretty full speed ahead on all, on all those days as much as I can. I mean, my, my day to day job is creating content, cooking, um, doing special appearances. And as of recently, as two seasons down, you know, the creator and host of a show called duck camp dinners, which is how I got introduced to the meat eater team. So, mm-hmm. Uh, essentially I created, I created a, a show, uh, called duck camp dinner centered around, um, the lifestyle, the food, the hunting of this little duck camp that we go to every weekend. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's a little floating camp in South Louisiana nice. and, um, I created a season one. It did well. Meat eater picked it up and, um, also is, uh, helping me produce a season two, which is in post edit right now which season two will go over multiple different duck camps throughout the coast of south louisiana uh kind of telling again that story of that person in place and hunting and food everything we love about south louisiana so uh that that's my tie-in with mediator of course i create some recipes for their web team and recipes for their social and am a part of different um different sh- shows that they have mm-hmm. uh duck lore being one of them which is sean weaver's new show on meat eater youtube and then uh also um a couple fishing shows that i've been on over the over this past summer so it's awesome sweet that's a it's a pretty good resume man i mean if uh if the boys over at meat eater are, are, are interested in you then you know you're doing something right yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, you know, my resume started a, a long time ago as a little boy in South Louisiana mm-hmm. and just being around great food. And, um, you know, when I was really young, before I even turned double digits, you know, being out in the pecan groves, hunting squirrels out, out the trees with a, you know, with a pellet gun and, um, you know, running beagles for rabbits out in the sugarcane fields. And then kind of once I started, once I was around 11 or 12, really going hunt with my dad pretty seriously as a, as a duck hunter. Mm-hmm. He's, and he's always duck hunting and he always had ducks in the freezer. And so, um, I, I remember, I remember not liking duck at all, uh, growing up. And then one day my my palate switched and then I couldn't get enough of it. And that's how I am today. Um, and, um, you know, so I grew up around food and really great cooks having parents. And then I went to culinary school and lived in San Francisco and New York, lived in New York city for 12 years. And so, um, are you still there now? 
No, I'm, okay. I'm in. I live in. I live in Texas now. Okay. Uh, but I, I, we just moved to Texas in October of twenty twenty one. Where the and, men are men uh, and the sheep are scared. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I always, I always give my Texas it. buddies that that line. Mess, yeah, mess with them a little bit. Yeah, nice. you got to mess with Texas people. They got it pretty good <laughs> over here, you know. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. So yeah, now, and you, you, uh, you, you worked in France, and and right. If I yeah, I lived. About in, that. I lived in France. Yeah, I lived in France for uh-huh. four months. I went to. I had it was part of an exchange program, my culinary school. Yeah, and um, but I've been to France. I've been to Europe multiple times. I'm a huge. I'm a huge traveler. So when I'm not when I'm not waterfowl hunting, when it's not those five precious months out of the year, mm-hmm. um, I am. I'm traveling the world. I'm. I'm all over the place. Um, my wife and I, before my son, would take two or three international trips a year. Um, obviously, with a four-month-old, that that's been on. You know, that's been on pause for a little bit. But we fully intend on. Um, in fact, I'm. I'm going to Croatia. We already oh, got a really? trip to Croatia planned in July of, of 2023. So a year from now, I already have that trip planned, which I'll be taking actually 10 to 20 different um, people uh, on a kind of like a culinary expedition of Croatia uh, in July nice. uh, of next year. So, um, you know, that that's we're going to kick up. I'm, I'm going to Moab tomorrow. I have different things in Arkansas. The next couple of weeks, Callapalooza being one of them, then Delta Waterfowl Conference um, in Little Rock in July. And so, uh, you know, if I'm not traveling internationally, I'm traveling across the states. And mm-hmm. uh, but we, we really like we really like being in other countries, not because we don't love our own, but because we just always seek the experience, you know, right. the thrill, the Wonder thrill lust. of a new place and new food. Oh, yeah, we yeah. love it. And so, yeah, um, it's it's how. It's, it's how I learn, you know, I, I went to culinary school and I've worked in some really like great restaurants around the country. Mm-hmm. And, but I continue to learn through these, these folks, um, you know, from all over the world that, that, and, and food that I fall in love with. And what I try to do is I try to bring it back into my own kitchen, mm-hmm. which inevitably has a lot of wild game being cooked in it. And so, uh, what ends up happening is I'm making like speckle belly goose pho, and I'm making wild boar Penang curry and I'm making like uh, different, um, you know, tacos and rice dishes and moles and you name it from different game, which has been a, a wonderful way to see the food I grew up with in the eyes of all these places I've traveled. Right. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot to learn in that for somebody like me, me who grew up cooking and grew up around great food, who who studied it, who is passionately like involved and keep learning about it. I find that travel really helps kind of engage that creative side continuously in me. So, um, when I'm not waterfowl hunting, man, uh, you know, obviously there's, there's a dove season. I I like, let me, let me, let me switch that up to like wing shooting. I was going to say, you're a, it sounds like you're a wing shooter. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I'm a wing shooter. So, I mean, I go from dove, to teal, to ducks, to geese, to turkeys, and then I'm then I'm I'm usually about done after that, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, but, I mean, so the one great thing about the wing shooting stuff is there's a lot more opportunity 
and the season, mm. like you said, I mean, you could pretty much go all year round for most of it, you know, like yeah. you play your cards right and, yeah. and travel right. Yeah. Um, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely nowhere near the, uh, you know, skill set that you have in cooking, but I've, I feel like every time I go out to eat, um, I'm taking something away from that meal. Unless it's something I've, you know, go to a specific place to eat a specific thing and I've eaten it a bunch of times. But yeah. when I, I like to try new places, which my wife doesn't, which is a kind of a pain in the ass because <laughs> trying to get her to go there, it's like, you know, I'm like, I want to go try yeah. this place. But um, yeah, I, I always like to try new things. I haven't with my, with my game uh, chefery. I haven't, yeah. uh, I haven't really gone outside of, um, I'm going to say like Italian Southwest. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I shouldn't say there's a couple of things that I've done, but you know, like South American maybe, and a little bit of, but I haven't like tried like your Asian stuff yet. I haven't gone in, in really in any direction that was kind of away from something that you might be used to eating that, yeah. you know, I've, I've wanted to, I just, I'm actually, I'm pretty good friends with, uh, with Hank Shaw. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I, I am. Yeah. Big fan of Hank's work, yeah. man. He's, I so, don't know him at all. Uh, but I've always loved following his culinary journey. It's yeah. Just great. He's, he's, uh, his, uh, recipes because i want for one I'm, I'm allergic to garlic and onions so i have to adapt everybody because everybody loads up game stuff with garlic and onions but um i've i've learned a lot from you know messing with his recipes and I'm, i've always kind of been that way anyway else i'm i'm not good at following directions so uh yeah and yep. um that's why i'm terrible at baking because I'm not, a, I can't, you know, baking is like an exact science. You have to have, you know, sure. X amount of grams of this and X amount of grams of that. And I'm like one of those guys, like I just throw things, you know, but, um, yeah, I've, I've, I feel like in the last like four or five years, especially I've really, cause there's things that I eat now and really enjoy that I used to just endure before, like Havelina being one of them. And you know, mm. We kill a lot of javelina out here in Arizona. Um, so, you know, I was like, eh, there was a couple of things. I had a couple of go-tos where, you know, marinate back straps and put them on the grill and turn them into taco type things. They, sure. they, were, they were good. But now, like, you know, I started experimenting with, like, your uh, pulled pork styles type stuff, doing tacos and and um, Yucatan stew and some other mm -hmm. couple, you know, a couple other things that I played around with. And I was like, now, and my kids like it. And I was like, all right, cool. So, you know, I'm actually doing something good. Um, but yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a big wide world out there and there's hardly any place yet to discover like, you know, on foot with your eyes. Of course, there's a, you know, there's places in Alaska and Maine and Canada. There's, you know, uh, there's kind of these, there's, there's deserts of, south america central america like there's a lot of there's that there's the um uh, patagonia mm -hmm. you know like there's places that can, you still have never discovered and man will probably never inhabit hopefully um but even if you can't get there by jet or by boat or by car or whatever you can get there by flavors 
And yeah. um, it may not be the same as setting eyes on a, on a, you know, when you're sitting, uh, s- sitting on a sunrise over the valley of the Andes Mountains. Like there's certain things that you yeah. can only yeah, do yeah. by being there. <laughs> but you can, you can, you can create that food. You know, mm-hmm. you can, you can, you can put your, your mind and your skills and your taste buds in that place through that way. And that sometimes that's the best you're going to get. Yeah. You know? It'll transport um, you right there, you know? Yep. Spe- and, um, I find that especially if you've been there before, which I know this is not, not what you're saying right now, but if you've been there before, it's really easy to get thrown back get, to get that. back. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, and I think a lot of the things that I cook and Hank cooks, he would never be cooking or never maybe even known about cooking if he hadn't gone there first and, and oh, yeah. had it for himself and said to himself, man, this would work really good with this, with these California ingredients that I have. Right. Like, yep. And, um, I think that's what all chefs like chefs, no matter if you are a fine dining chef in New York or Seoul, Korea or San Francisco, or you're just, you know, you're, you're a chef in a small town in West Texas, let's say, mm-hmm. or you're like me who doesn't even have a, a, like a conventional restaurant job anymore. I left that three years ago. Um, but you know, you, you still, uh, you still count, you count on those experiences to build your creative palette mm-hmm. and everything, everywhere that you go, everything that you taste doesn't matter. Like you said, you go, you know, you haven't, it's hard to get your wife to go to a certain, you know, to different, different places. They, she likes, you know, where she's comfortable at and that's understandable. But there's always something to take away, even if it's a bad thing, right? Like you start learning a lot when you're like, oh, yeah, I like this, this and that. But then you can also say, I didn't like this, that and this. What would I do different? And I think all that builds like what I call your culinary palette, you know, and if you had this palette that you were able to paint from with all these colors on it, they start getting mixed around, right? Like all Mm -hmm. those little colors start bleeding together, start creating new little colors, and you're like, oh, that's a cool shade of blue. Let me use that for this. It's the same thing with cooking, but you have to create those colors through taste, through sights and sounds, through being with people and creating those experiences. So, and I think chefs just, they have those experience. That's a new color in their palette and they mm-hmm. can use it to paint whatever. Um, that's a awesome way to put it. Yeah. So I could see that for sure. I find myself um, personally, um, when I'm not experiencing it somewhere else, the, the, my biggest, um, influences or my, my biggest muse is when I don't have really ingredients and I look in the refrigerator and I'm like, I got this, I got this and I got this. And I just start like throwing stuff together and I'm like, wow, that came out good. And then I got to kind of like reverse engineer it a little bit and, and, uh, and you know, put it on paper so I have that recipe still. But yeah, you know. <laughs> so see, like I feel like that's the resourceful resourcefulness that you you have as a outdoorsman, as a hunter who like needs to depend on making decisions on the fly. Whether that's setting up, you know, a ground blind for a turkey you're hearing in the distance, or whether that's a elk bugling a ways away and like how to set up on that. Mm-hmm. And you start to use the resourcefulness of the land and the topography and the different vegetation that's around you to be camouflaged and to blend in, you know, that same resource resourcefulness leads into the kitchen in the same way. I'm doing the same thing for dinner tonight. 
I don't have any vegetable in my fridge right now as I'm leaving to go out of town. The only vegetable that I have is a sweet potato. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I started thinking to myself, okay, like, I have all this, you know, meat. Like, what can I do with these sweet potatoes? So, I, I have a – I'm making sweet potato fritters um, mm, that nice. I'm going to fry up in the cast iron and grill some wild boar pork tenderloin on the grill. I'm going to have that and make a little sauce, and there, there's dinner. But I think that same resourcefulness you get from the field translates to the kitchen when you look into your fridge. Mm-hmm. And every now and then, you got to make – in fact, more times than not, you know, you go in with a game plan, you assess the situation, game plan changes, you pivot, and you're even successful or you're not, and you learn from those successes and those failures equally the same. Yeah, absolutely. I ha- You know, it's funny, like, I haven't had, and maybe it's just I'm my palate's kind of wide or whatever, but I haven't had too many where I was like, uh, yeah, that didn't work. You know, there's been a couple. <laughs> there's been a couple, yeah. you know, but... Well, yeah, like, you know, I think that's a good thing. That's yeah. a good, that's a, what a high class problem to have as yeah. a cook, you know? Yeah, like, we, you, <laughs> that's, and, and it's kind of driving me to be more interested in food. Like, I've always been a foodie. Like, you know, I always enjoyed eating good food. And uh, my wife is the same way. She loves eating, you know, but to take her to a new place, it's like, it's different. Like, <laughs> you know, it takes, takes some doing. But we, it's, I love, like, I don't know. I, I just love food, and I love, you know, pairings. And I, you know, one of our favorite places to go is Napa. Like, mm. one because we got engaged there. It's kind of like our happy place. But the food is amazing, you know. And then you got the wine, and you got the culture, you got the, you know, the scenery. It's kind of like you feel like you're in Europe when you're there. And Napa is. The, that whole valley, you know, yeah. Russian River, Sonoma, yep. Napa, those whole areas are incredible. I mean, I lived in, I lived in, I lived in Yountville oh, love you for Yontville. for a year before yeah. I moved to Sam before I moved to Pacifica and worked in San Francisco for. Oh, you, year, you live in Pacifica. That's uh, so Charles, my uh, my buddy from uh, California, and we we hunt together a lot, and uh, he's co-founder with Howlful Wildlife and uh, he's from Pacific. Well, he's not from nice. Pacific. He lives in Pacific. He's from he's from Michigan, but we love like, that town. Uh, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't married back then. I was a bachelor and uh, and a broke cook at that time. Um, <laughs> and so that was the only place that we could find my 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 roommate and I could find uh, you know, rent that we could afford. That would have been in 2000 and Hey guys, I wanted to take a moment to discuss some really important stuff with you. Take a minute and think hard about what hunting and fishing and the outdoors means to you. Now I want you to imagine if all of that went away. It's a pretty grim picture, right? Now that I have your attention, there's a long time narrative out there that has been promoted by the anti-hunting and fishing groups to paint sportsmen and women as villains. We need to stop this narrative. We need to bring the truth to light. So how do we do that? We educate ourselves on the North American model of conservation and the common myths that are pushed out by the animal activists. We take this knowledge and we start communicating with our non-hunting friends, co-workers, and just educate them on the truth. But I really want you 
to become an expert in your own right. Because the last thing we want to do is to put out false information or to uh, offend somebody. So it's really important to just fill yourself with knowledge and become, unfortunately, become an activist. You have to become an activist. And I know that's a dirty word, but now more than ever, it's important for us to do that. We need to start planting our own seeds. That way, there's we, we develop more people we turn more people into sympathizers because right now we're faced with these issues where if a anti-hunting bill reaches the ballot, now Halfa Wildlife has been very uh, successful at eliminating that, getting there, but we can't rely on that, unfortunately. If it gets to the ballot, the anti-hunting, the animal activist groups, animal rights groups, they are in position to launch campaigns to the non-hunting public and they will pump propaganda into urban areas where people don't necessarily know anything about hunting and fill their minds with all kinds of lies and paint pictures of cute and cuddly bears and lions and wolves and and paint this terrible picture of you, the hunter, the sportsman, who is the whole reason why these animals are on the landscape. So it is important for us to start, in a grassroots effort, start changing the minds and educating the non-hunting public on the truth that way if something like this does go to the ballot box you have possibly created a sympathetic voter for the sportsman keep that in mind think about it i want you to take a moment and go to the howlful wildlife education center you can either get there by going to howlful wild excuse me, howlfoundation.org, or you could go to howlfulwildlife.com and click on the education, and that will take you there. And that has a lot of good resources for you to um, arm yourself, to educate yourself, and to become an expert in your own right on the North American model of conservation, on the myths, on the all the tools that they use against us um, and just get science and, and truth on your side. Thank you very much. Let's get back to the show. Seven, 2008. It's not that um, way anymore, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. You know, because 800 square foot bungalow it. goes for like 2 million. Man, like we had a, we had a rental. And it's about the size of the house that I'm in right now, which is about 1,800 square feet. And uh, I was, you know, we've lived in 700, 800 square feet of rentals in New York for 12 years. Mm -hmm. So, like, moving into a 15 to 1,800 square foot something was like, hell yeah. Space, that's big. You know, that's big time for me. Um, And um, when we lived in Pacifica, I swear, I mean, our 
our place was at least 1500 square feet you could you could see the pacific ocean because you know that whole area it's it like just keeps going up or keeps going down depending if you're going towards the ocean or not and we were kind of on top of the hill so we could see the pacific and see the sun sunset and um I mean, it was an epic little apartment, and I don't remember how much the rent was, but I know it was cheap mm. because, like I said, I, w- I wasn't making no money back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I wish I wish I would know. I wish I would know what that apartment. It was actually a house that was for rent. Uh, but anyways, yeah, that was a cool town. Now I tell you what scared the crap out of me, and your and your buddy could you you might better. Um, 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 Attest to it. Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, but the fog in that area, yeah, is brutal. Yeah, brutal. I mean, I thought I knew whiteout fog in my life, like hunting in the Mississippi, hunting the Mississippi Delta and the river, and, you know. And you have that, you have a you know a a, a a light south wind come in from the from the Gulf and create that fog on the river. And sometimes you can't see the bow of your boat. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there were many times where I was coming back from the restaurant, um, uh, which was at Rincon park on the Embarcadero in San Francisco. And then right onto the highway to get to Pacifica and like literally going 25 miles an hour, just like gripping my steering wheel, <laughs> white knuckling the thing the whole way, because like, it's, you know, you have the, and I'm from South Louisiana, right? Like yeah. there's no cliffs and drop-offs where we're from. Like if you go off the road, you go into a, a drainage ditch that's six feet deep at best. Right, right. And um, this was a different story. I don't know. That's uh, something that I California's I, I fog definitely. is. Oh yeah, no joke. <laughs> it's thick, thick, bro. It's real thick. Yeah, but that was good times, man. I miss California. I, I do. I mean, from a culinary point of view, it, it is one of the richest in terms of ingredients and produce and agriculture. Everything from your dairy dairy farming that happens over there and all the cheese and milks and everything that happened and obviously the your your produce mm-hmm. and fruits and you know every everything that happens in the central valley along the coast towards monterey um obviously the vineyards i mean it is just so rich in ingredients and really the best ones in the country mm-hmm. for a lot of different produce comes out of california it's something I always look at when I go to my grocery store. If I can't go to the farmer's market and I'm going to my grocery store, I'm always looking at that little label, the little sticker that's on the fruit or the label wrapping around the Swiss chard, kale, whatever it is, yep. to see where it's from. And if it's from the USA, it's most likely from California. Um, and so, I don't know, I miss, I miss that about California. I miss a lot of things about California. That's one of them. Yeah, yeah. Um. Let's switch gears a little bit. I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about um, game meat in general. I know you're you're. I kind of have an idea what you're going to say to this question since you, yeah. you're a duck hunter. But um, what is your what is your favorite game meat um, to eat and to cook? Ah, uh, you know. Yeah, you wouldn't be wrong to say that like waterfowl is up there for me. Um, specifically, a speckle belly goose, I think, is one of the best pieces of waterfowl to eat. You know, sandhill crane gets a lot of a, a lot of like glory because of its likeness to steak, and and there and and that's like if I'm gonna if I'm gonna talk about waterfowl eating at like medium rare medium, 
Um, I'm going to say, you know, speckle belly goose, crane, canvas back duck. Um, you know, I'm not an elk hunter, but I've been given elk in the past. I've been able to cook it a good bit. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to beat, man. You know that, yeah. um, better than anyone. And, um, that that's got to be up there and one of my favorite ones to eat probably because I don't get to eat it very often. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, I mean, just remarkably good. I think, you know, to Jesse Griffin's part, part, uh, Gref- Jesse Griffith's part, excuse me, point, uh, with the wild hog book, I think wild hog like it's like it's, um, farm raised cousin domestic pigs. Right. They're so, um, versatile. And, and how you can use them that they're, they're really interesting to interesting to cook, uh, and mess with as from a creative point of view. Um, but so I would put this into like waterfowl. I'm, I'm, I'm putting on like speckle belly goose for my goose category, canvas backs for ducks and, um, you know, cranes as, as my, as my X factor, I guess yep. I'm using, I'm using elk as, as a, you know, big game backcountry kind of i don't know would or elk see this is this is how little i know about elk hunting and i should considering my bosses but like are they considered venison like axis and whitetail would be and mule deer they are but they are bovine so that's why people can relate them to the flavor of beef okay um because they're great they're grazers not browsers ah Uh, okay and so their their diet it's made up mostly the same kind of diet that a cat would eat. Um, but yes, they are venison. I mean, they're cherubid. They're yeah. Well, they, then they I would put an, elk grow antlers and drop venison. antlers. Yeah, so. yeah. So, but I just never heard them considered venison. You know what I mean? Like you hear like axis, whitetail, muleys, yeah. all that. Like as the broader umbrella of like venison, right? Right. right. But elks. Has always been like elk, right? Yeah. Not, anyways. So elk, that's good to know. elk and moose are very similar. Um, yeah, in flavor to me, at least, I, when I've tasted them both. Um, yeah. I would say out of that whole group, caribou and axis deer are probably the best tasting meat. Like. Just if you threw salt on it and put it on the grill mm. and ate it, if you ate a piece of every one of them, those two would probably be the best. I've had I've had access before, and I do like it. But caribou, tell me about that. Is that just? I mean, obviously, I know what it looks like. I know what right. kind of animal it is. But but how is that meat different from an elk? Because they're relatively yeah. Is caribou a little smaller? Yeah, than elk, it, it, it okay. is smaller. Um, and which is crazy to me. That this is the case because they're more, they're definitely more nomadic than elk and they mm-hmm. travel great distances. So I expected the meat to be more of that uh, pink fiber, you know, pink mm-hmm. muscle fiber, which, because they're, but whatever it was, those animals, the meat was way more tender without having to do anything special to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. no different aging process, no different cooking process, whatever. Uh, my very first time I, I got to eat caribou, and I've, I've actually never killed one myself yet, so I've not 
gone hunting and taken home, but I've had caribou meat a couple of times now, but the first time I had it, um, we were in Banff and I was there for a, uh, a work trip that's related to my swimming pool company, believe it or not, wasn't there for a hunting thing. And, uh, we went to this restaurant and it was like a, kind of like a fondue place almost mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. they brought out like a big hot rock and you were like cooking little pieces of meat on the hot rock and, you know, grabbing little pinches of the different spices they came out and you would put it on there and you'd eat it. And then there was like, you know, hot cheese and this and that. Um, that was my first, first experience with it. And I was like, yo, this shit's good. Like <laughs> I gotta go hunting for this. I, I've still yet to go. Uh, but then I had a, I had a, a client of mine who came to hunt here in Arizona with me and he had just came off one and they brought us, he brought me a piece of, um, of backstrap and, uh, I made it in two different ways. I made it my traditional venison, you know, go-to dish, which is, I'm sure you've seen a million times and heard a million people do it is I make, you know, like jalapeno popper type style yep. Yep. Uh, with that. And then the rest, I, um, I did tight, kind of like a stroganoff type deal with it. It was, it was good. So, um, but the meat was Man, just fantastic. I, yeah. Got to put, I got to put caribou on my list of things to get into my freezer, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I haven't. So both, I, um, both times they were both, uh, from backstrap or loin. Um, so I don't know like roasts or, you know, legs or any, any of that other stuff might be freaking tough i have no clue but i've i've yeah. heard from other people that they said that that it's excellent meat all the way around so well i would imagine like i mean you know most animals that walk on four legs mm-hmm. have tough hindquarters right you know like that's you know they do a lot you know people don't understand um that you know this makes a lot of sense when you say it but for some people they've never been told this and so it they don't ever get to connect the dots, but typically speaking, your most used meats on an animal, the, the, the meat, the, the part of the, the part of the carcass that animals using the most is going to be not just the toughest, mm-hmm. but also the richest in, in flavor. And for example, tongue, cheek meat, uh-huh. like, especially on something like cattle, Oh, where yeah. they're constantly, constantly eating, chewing, yeah, constantly chewing. That cheat meat is, I mean, you could never cut that up into make it a tartar no, or no. serve <laughs> it rare, medium rare. You got to braise the crap out of that, pull it, you know, in it. But it is incredibly rich because of how much it gets used. The same with the tongue, obviously, the same with the hindquarters. Things like the filet mignon mm-hmm. on, a, on a cap on our tenderloin. On, on, which would be equivalent to um, on on the cattle that that muscle contracts to help the digestive system, mm-hmm. which on a cow obviously gets used a lot, but far less, far far less than its hind legs, its front legs, or its jaw and tongue, and therefore your filet mignon. Or your or your tenderloin mm-hmm. is the most tender because it doesn't get the same type of abuse that all the rest do, and so. But it also all your steak cuts. It may be the most tender, but it has the least amount of like beefiness, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that 
kind of applies to just about every animal. Um, there may be some exceptions there, but, um, you know, a hind leg on a, on a, a hind leg on a wild hog is going to be equivalently as tough, uh, if you will, mm-hmm. to then, then a hind leg on a whitetail, right? Like, right. and compared to its tenderloin counterpart. So anyways, I mean, it's just, when you think about tenderness, you think about, you know, or how you cook something, you know, a hind leg, a hind muscle or front leg quarter or something, something where that four legged animal is always putting a lot of pressure on most likely is going to need a low and slow kind of cooking method, a pot roast in a Dutch oven, um, a, you know, a crock pot, a low and slow in the smoker, that type of thing. Right. So what would you consider your, your grill cuts from, uh, well, well I mean, obvi- yeah, obviously, obviously your loin and tenderloins, your back straps, you know, if, as, as you use them interchangeably there, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think there are parts of like, for example, in the front shoulder, there is, um, oh man, I'm, um, I'm blanking on the real name, but in pork in barbecue world, we call it the money muscle, mm-hmm. um, which is the it's um it's a part of the front shoulder that's kind of uh tucked into the blade it gets it's kind of protected from doing a lot of the hard work but it gets a lot of that richness and so but like and somebody's going to correct me in the comment section or on instagram once i put once somebody posts this (laughs) and uh or not correct me but um enlighten me but that's a good grilling piece i mean look in terms of um, you know, there's part, there's even parts of the hindquarter that are good for grilling. If you know what you're looking for within that larger primal cut. Right. So, mm-hmm. and after that, you know, there are certain things that you can do, like, you know, the, the, the use of <clears throat> sous vide vacuum packing and sous vide now can also bring, you know, um, a lot of tenderness to those cuts without overcooking them. So like you can, cook those in a bag and sous vide them for a long time mm-hmm. at a certain temperature to get them tender, but not get them like dry and gray to where you can take them out of the bag and then flash grill them. Um, so there's, there's a number of ways that you can, can work those cuts in, you know, obviously when it comes to ducks and geese, just like every other animal, you mentioned elk, how they're grazers and how they eat a lot like cattle. Um, well, that, that goes the same with ducks, like ducks that you shoot in Kansas, Missouri, the Dakotas, and they're corn fed. They're, right. they're on like those flooded um, Milo fields, a color yeah. flooded corn fields. They're getting this big old fat cap. Not only that, not only that, but they haven't, they haven't had the thousands of miles of, of, uh, of flight that, that, that happens when ducks get down to say Louisiana. Yep. So in Louisiana, they've, they migrated all the way south until they go to Mexico. They might as far south in in, in in America as you can go, and and they're also eating natural vegetation as opposed to planted agricultural crops. Rice field being the exception, but for the most part of Louisiana, they're eating those natural widgeon grasses, natural local vegetation that happens in the saltwater and freshwater swamps and marshes of South Louisiana, mm-hmm. which is a leaner diet is equivalent to 
a cow being grass fed its whole life and the cow being grass fed and corn corn and corn finished right the one corn finished is going to have much more in the muscular tissue much more fat on it than than a than a cow that's been grass fed all its life yeah and so essentially the ducks you shoot in louisiana much more like grass fed cow than you know than uh than like the corn fed ducks that would be more like you know those fattened those fattened cattle on corn so Mm. again and that should inform you how you're going to cook that duck between the species the amount of fat content and so on i always call um cajun food the food that i grew up with the great equalizer of wild game and if if you if you thought like if somebody doesn't like wild game because they think it's too tough they think it's too irony they think it's too gamey then make it into a cajun dish and feed it to them again i bet you i bet you they like it better if not love it because mm-hmm. that type of cooking that cajun food kind of induces from its culture um is is like these long and slow kind of stews and gumbos and braises mm-hmm. that you know tenderize everything and kind of definitely kind of lends itself yep, yeah yeah exactly um and so it's kind of the great equalizer if you will um for game meats and it's how most of us grew up like i didn't eat a mid-rare duck till i was in college yeah it always was cooked till it was falling off the bone and gumbos and jambalayas etouffees fricassees sauce because you name it right um and that's all that's all pretty indicative of cajun cajun food and now you know now like the the newer the younger generations my generation and younger you know, they're looking at even things like ringnecks, which we shoot a whole bunch of in South Louisiana and eating a mid-rare medium because they kind of eat a lot like they're like a tiny mallard in terms of their in terms of their breastplate and the amount of fat that they carry, even even mm-hmm. after migrating all the way from South Louisiana. I don't think I've ever had. I've, I mean, I've eaten my share of duck here and there. Um can't tell you which ones I was eating, to be honest with you. Yeah, <laughs> except no, for the ones, I mean, except for the ones that I shot myself. It's, um, it's it's funny because like especially with geese, and you're talking about the the lesser species of Canada geese, mm-hmm. and definitely the the graders, the big hawkers. Um, you know, people like people have a really hard time cooking those birds. Snow geese being also one of those. They just they can't they can't get over like how long a goose breast like a honker yeah like takes to cook and get tender because it's so it's such a big piece of meat and they you know a lot of people call them like greasy early early season honkers like there's no way you can make those taste good uh i i can i can i can almost bet that if i if i get my hands on and make it into a gumbo that it's going to eat really good you know like so i think it's just a matter of and you know this i think this is this is true for all while while game is like you got to know how to prepare you got to know how to take care of it in the field mm-hmm. right you got to know how to you know make sure it's clean properly and you got to cook to its strengths you know um i think that's the most important thing right there is yep. cook to its strengths it, but you, you know you have to realize what those are um a hundred percent and i i don't about everything obviously i don't know everything i I know that's why I keep going back to my, you know, what I know, but because 
different meat different times a year. Uh, like you were saying, whatever they're eating on changes. Like bears, notorious for that. Like you, you get yep. a bear that's eating salmon, it tastes fishy. You eat a, one that's eating blueberries, it tastes you know delicious. And you know, there's uh, it's having that realization while you're hunting these animals. Okay, kind of having an idea what you're going to do with it, and in the in why you're why you're out there you know i'm not saying like spend yeah. time thinking about how you're going to cook your meal before you catch it but you know but um but do, like do you bear hunt because this is this is yeah. bringing out, like i'm i'm curious about this i've i've always like a bear's on my bucket list of and i i just i just think they're majestic animals they're beautiful um i've always wanted to hunt one i've always wanted to have bear meat in my freezer and i've always wanted to have a bear bear rug mm-hmm. right like those, i just want i want everything to do with them right but I've heard that before. Now I've heard that you know those would they be spring bears or fall bears, whatever ones that are eating eating salmon, they can come out as fishing, right? Right. So here's my here's my question to you and to any bear hunter per se, if you know if like, like you're tracking this trophy bear that you you know is in the area, you got him on, you got him on uh, trail cams, whatever, mm-hmm. you know where he's at and you're hunting this specific thing, but you know he's eating fish. Mm-hmm. You know that that meat, I wouldn't, you know, I, I don't know if you call it tainted, but you call it, it's going to taste like something. Right. What do you, what do you do as a hunter knowing that? Meaning like, is there, is there a game plan for the meat? Are there? You got to just got to find, you got to, there's always, there's always a workaround, you know, mm-hmm. I, and I don't, I don't know what that is with bear because, uh, I don't really eat, I don't really um, hunt bear that are eating fish. Got it. I very rarely go on the coast uh, to hunt bear. Um, so most of the time, whatever bear I'm hunting is either eating meat or they're eating acorns or you know yep. vegetation of some sort. You know, hunting here in Arizona or you know somewhere in the in the inner mountain west. Um, so for me, that's never been a problem. Uh, although I did. Um, I did go to Canada and, and shoot one years and years ago and I didn't know any better, but, um, it did, it did have that fishiness to it and Mm -hmm. I wasn't, you know, excited about eating it. Although I did eat it. I think it's just finding, like you said, finding what place to that meat strengths, like figuring out what can I do? You know, there's always some old crazy wives tale or, or, trick I should say not tell but to uh having a good outcome with the meat you know was that soaking yeah. buttermilk or you know one of, one of these things uh I unfortunately don't know what that is but I know yeah. that those are out there I mean my one of my bucket list birds is a king eider you know mm-hmm. going to Alaska and and going sea duck hunting like but I'm a little conflicted because yeah, they, C- they say they taste terrible. Sea you ducks. Know, like sea ducks. Yeah, taste terrible. Um, and so, like, I want to shoot one. I want one for my trophy room. You know, right? Uh, but but as a chef, I'm a little conflicted on like what now. Like part of me, part of the other part of being a chef is just the curiosity. Like, right? Maybe I should go shoot one just to eat it, just to see know? what you can do with it. Yeah, yeah, just to see what I can do with it. Well, I um, so I I grew up on Long Island. We do a lot of sea duck hunting there. Um, and it's been a long time since I've gone and shot sea ducks. So, but 
I know that there's guys out there that do it every year and they all have their own little secret mm. uh, way. The last matter of fact, I end up trying this recipe. It's the one time that I kind of went out of my comfort zone and did something Asian. Um, I did have like a Peking duck style mm. and it mm. was with a, I think it was a buffalo head maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, and it was good. It was real good. And so I tried it actually on a, it was, I was going to tell you about it when you were talking about goose. Um, mm-hmm. I actually shot a tundra swan and I tried that. That's it. Tried that preparation with it. I, I kind of. And how how is how is the swan? Because I know people. Feel I, like, I, I kind of like screwed people it have up. Much more love with the swan than they do sea doves. I, I it was it was good. It was edible. It just yeah. I don't think I did it right. I it, yeah. It was definitely a technique uh, failure on my part. Um. Mm. And I think about as far as like cooking time and all that stuff because the flavor was good. It's just it was really tough and a little dried out and it's not something I expected with that with that type of meat you know because it yeah. was pretty damn fatty um, hmm. but I did shoot it what about you know, so. what about pool dew or coot have you ever no you ever eaten I've never never done it so never, uh, shot, so I never you, shot a coot if, either if you, if you haven't watched season one of, of duck camp dinners watch it I think I can't I might be it might be episode four or five mm-hmm maybe five of, of duck of season one. Okay. And we grew up eating what we call poodoo and, and the, in French, I don't know, for those don't, who don't know what I'm saying, uh, it basically in French that translates to water chickens, poodoo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, make, and, uh, makes but sense. for the ro- for the roast, for the rest of y'all, uh, y'all, y'all call them coots. Mm-hmm. And, uh, until I started duck hunting in other places in Louisiana, I thought everybody ate them. Right. We, we grew up eating them all of our, like, I, I mean, I've probably eaten more poodoo than I have duck in my, in my life, you know? Um, so you're, you're already that, got it down then. I'm going to tell you right now, because everybody I've ever talked to said sea ducks remind them of coots. Uh, see, I, that's great. That's think, crazy. That's crazy to me. I think um, that if you probably handle it the same way, you're probably going to be all right. There you go, Cajun gravy right there, man. That's what you need for. No, like for so our pool do or our coots, they're eating the same exact grass mm-hmm. and local vegetation that all the other ducks that they migrate with are eating. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if it's a really regional thing that makes poodoo taste as good, if not I mean, most of the old timers, mm-hmm. of course they're not as fun as to shoot. They're less sporty than ducks to shoot and so on. Um, so like there's that whole thing, but most of the old timers, my dad's generation older, mm-hmm. they say they don't want ducks. Go ahead and shoot me 10, 10 pool do and bring them back. And, um, and I'm, and I wonder because their, their meat tends to be on the lighter shade of red mm-hmm. as, as a lot of the ducks that we hunt in South Louisiana. And I find their, their meat a lot more mild than the ducks that we shoot in the same area. So I'm wondering if it's a regional thing in South Louisiana, being that they are eating the same, if they were on the same playing field, literally and figuratively, right? Mm -hmm. So the same playing field of feed, um, biologically is that 
poodoo or that coot a better eaten bird if if they're eating the same eating the same things i don't know i don't know the answer to that or if there's any truth to that but what i'm saying is that they're delicious in south louisiana i don't know where everybody else is eating them <laughs> but uh but I, I, well, but there is a lot there's obviously a lot of truth to you know the diet of any any wild game um waterfowl or land mammals or you know any, oh, yeah. even fish for that matter you yeah, know all like, of it all of it yes wahoo you get pumpkin not not wahoo but you get swordfish that are called pumpkin swords because they feed on deep water krill and it turns their flesh orange Hmm. um they eat differently than swordfish that are that are eaten more in that mid to mid level to top water um of, of of the salt of the ocean so right anyways i think you know they get a bad rep in south louisiana we love them but I'm, I'm, I've been always curious if that's just because of their diet they have here. Well, I'm going to have to get a recipe from you and give a whack. Because I, I have this one spot where I like to go. I haven't been there now. It's been probably five or six years old. But there was always coots there. And I, I, I could shoot them with my bow, you know. And I wanted nice. to, I just wanted to go and like whack a couple, just and. But then I was like, what am I gonna do with them? Like everybody tells me how shitty they taste. I don't, you know. Yeah, make them to that's, a gumbo, man. I'll so, share, but I'd like I'll to maybe you. go do that and then try it because that'd be yeah. that'd be cool. I'll share my duck and andouille gumbo with you, All right. and you know, on a nice on a nice chill night in Arizona, make you a gumbo. Eat, you know, make some white rice, eat it over rice, and you gotta have, you know, you just gotta. You just got to cook them till they, they start falling apart, you mm-hmm. know? Um, they make a darn good gravy, man. They make a darn good gravy. So. All right. Well, I'm going to have to try that out now. See, I, I and I think that it's pretty much goes for almost anything out there. I'm sure there's some exceptions where you just can't do anything with it. Um, but there's somebody somewhere that knows how to cook that meat correctly you know yeah um you're you're right you know and i i that's the same thing like a javelina like anybody you talk to out here is like oh that's oh it's terrible it's terrible yeah but then you talk to some of the older hispanic community and they Mm -hmm. know how to cook it you know yeah they know how to do Do that so don't they don't they um they have a um his Historically speaking, I guess they've always had like a smell to them. Oh yeah, right. Is that yeah? They call them stink pigs. Yep. Stink pigs. That's yep. it. Yep. They smell like skunk. To an extent. Ah. To an extent. Is that just like and that's biologically what, what they do? Well, they got a scent because... gland. Yeah, they have a scent gland okay. on their back, and that's one of the things that anybody who's hunting them needs to know to avoid uh, getting that on your knife because then you transfer it onto the meat, and then it's really hard to make them taste good because then they got that skunkiness now Mm. i've i've killed two animals in my life where after trying two meal preparations i end up giving away all the meat Mm. and they're probably two of the most biggest accomplishments in my life it was my ibex Ah. and my bighorn sheep i could not stand eating either one of them the ibex was i tried slow cooking it and i did it for like Mm. i don't even know how many hours like and it, I literally could have spackled my house with the damn thing. It was so, it was really? tough, tough, and just, 
I'm not a big lamb guy, so when it's really lamby tasting, mm. um, and both of those animals were super lamby tasting. That, I, that I was, wish I had somebody. That was kind of, yeah, that was kind of my next question. Did they have that lamb funk to them? Yep. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lamb that goat. Not, yeah. Yeah. That goaty. Yeah. I, I, I know exactly the flavors you're talking about. And I can imagine that in concentrated farms, which wild game in a lot of ways, like a, a wild hog tastes much more porky mm-hmm. than a, a domestic pig. A wild duck tastes much more ducky than a domestic duck. Right. And so when you have those those horned kind of relatives of the sheep and goat and you're, and you know what domestic sheep or goat tastes like. I can imagine the, the wild versions of them have that concentration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. I'm, something else, but I, I mean, again, <laughs> I'm sure that I didn't, I didn't find, <laughs> I didn't, and I felt terrible too. Cause here's this like, first off my, the sheep, that's a once in a lifetime. We can never, I can never do that again. And like, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm, I'm do not enjoy this meat at all. Like, you know, I eat mountain lion over that any day, you know, something that nobody would ever think would be, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's just weird. Like it was a, but I gave it, so I'm working construction. I have a bunch of Hispanic people who work for me and they were all about it. They wanted it. You know, they were like going to make barbacoa and stuff like that. I should have had them make, have them make me some and bring it over so I could could have tried it, but I, I don't know. I guess I didn't think about it, but, um, they you, all ate it. You eat a lot. You eat a lot of mountain lion. Uh, well, I wouldn't say a lot because I don't. We don't kill that many, but uh, I have yeah. eaten it a few times. Yeah. I mean, I would totally hunt a mountain lion and totally cook with it, but I don't know. There's something ingrained, deep seated, ingrained in my head that it's like it's a cat. Yeah. And I know it's tough to get over. Yeah. Yeah, it's like one of those things. I'm like, I would like. I'm not opposed to trying it and really. I don't. I think I would like it if it's good, but it is actually the meat's, is, ve- meat's very mild. Yeah, <laughs> meat is very mild. Um, it's almost pork-like uh, in mm. texture and in appearance. Um, yeah, um, it's mm. it's real good. Like, mm. but um, I've seen I've seen some friends, some guys that I follow, some friends that I've had you know grown grown with over the years mountain lion hunt in different parts of the country mm-hmm. and that's a and that's somewhat of a you know that's a, right like just hunting them in in general or that season on them it's really varies from state to state obviously and there's a lot of yep. laws i guess on the protection or you know i mean I, again I, i've never lived anywhere where mountain lions are prevalent mm-hmm. or at least well, if you California, live in California, they're super prevalent over know, there. Right? <laughs> you yeah. just can't. At the time, them. I didn't know that that and um, but yeah, like I feel like they're one of those things where it's a highly debated subject. Mountain lions. Yeah, no, it is, and um, you know, because one because of that, people have an have a stigma with eating them, and then you know it they view it as this majestic beast that, mm-hmm. you know, we shouldn't be hunting because we're hunting it just for its hide and just for the, the, you know, the picture of yeah. it or so on and so forth. We actually deal with this a lot, but 
when when you're talking about this stuff, like hunting for large predators in general, wolves, anything, it's not just you're not just hunting them for the experience of hunting them. It's also a management tool. Yeah. What people don't understand is that when you when you enter a system, okay, and whether well, let's just talk about hunting here at, at specifically. So if we're hunting prey, prey game, and we're not and we're managing prey animals and we're not managing predators, mm-hmm. things get out of whack. Yep. And they go badly. But it doesn't even we don't even have to hunt prey to interrupt that. Man's reach, man's touch is on everything we do everything every place you go even in some of the most remote wilderness like i've been in places where you're like oh i I must be the first person to step foot on this piece of ground and then you look down and you see like a bottle cap or some shit and you're like yeah what the hell you know and we we have we have way too many people in the world, unfortunately, you know, and uh, and we, we can't go call people out. We can't, we can't uh, thin the herd. Mm. We can't manage the people. So we need to start looking at things like way differently than we do. It's, it's, uh, you know, we're, or otherwise we're going to be in trouble. We've, we've exceeded the carrying capacity of the world being, mm. being a, a billion people, you know, yeah. this, yeah. this all worked. You know, we talk about, uh, you know, greenhouse gases and this and that and changing climate and blah, 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 you know, but nobody talks about the real problem there. The real problem there is this is all, there's just too many freaking people. Right. So, I mean, how do we do that? How do we, how do we deal with that? But yeah, no, no, that's interesting. (laughs) My wife and I were talking about that the other day because we were talking about like buying homes in Texas and how much, and we were driving through West Texas and, we're on our way from, you know, College Station to Abilene. Mm-hmm. And for those who are familiar with Texas, there's a whole lot of nothing in between College Station and Abilene, Texas. Right. And, um, and you know, she asked me, she said, I mean, do you think like places like this someday will be inhabited by man and it's going to be, you know, pumped in water and golf courses and yep. so on and so forth? And I said, Probably not in our lifetime, but yeah, if man, if we keep growing the way we're growing, if our population continues to increase, which it hasn't slowed down to my knowledge, nope. Um, yeah, we're going to need to find new places to live or build upwards, like New York City. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know about this particular five hundred person town in the middle of you know hill country in Abilene, but eventually the the numbers will won't lie like the numbers will continue to inform us on what we got to do and we can't live in the ocean or on the ocean or on oil rigs so it's land it is you know it's like yep yeah yeah it's scary it's scary yeah i'll I'll be long gone but we got kids and you're gonna have grandkids and they're gonna have to deal with it you know it's just it's a weird it's a weird thing to think about and it's funny. I was having this realization the other day when I'm going to take this podcast in a very different direction away from food, but we're, we're, I was sitting there thinking about, I'm like, maybe it's God's plan right now 
the reason why we're seeing all this like transgender, we're seeing a lot more of the homosexual and, and it, hopefully those are not breeders, right? Because it can't happen, yeah. right? And maybe that's one, one of the solutions for God or mother nature, or whatever you want to believe in, you know, uh, is, is kind of working towards, uh, to having less children being born. Yeah. I, I don't, I mean, you know, I, I have one, I have one right now and trust me, that's a, that's a conversation that I'm having with, you know, my wife and I were like, you know, maybe, maybe we have a second one, but I'm like, I don't know. There's enough people in this world right now. Like I, like my son is, has my name. He can carry on that right. name. Yep. I'd love to have a daughter or somebody for him to play with, but also like, I don't mind living in a 1500 square foot house. And if we have three children, like do that means we got to find, Oh, you're going to need, you're definitely going to need another home. (laughs) Okay. I have three children. I I have a 25 square foot, 2,500 square foot home. And we're like on top of each other in here. (laughs) So, but yeah, I don't know. It's, that's, it's a crazy thing to think about. And I, I don't know. It really is. It really is. And I, I look at a lot of things from a management standpoint. I, I have a degree in wildlife management, rangeland management, and rangeland management and ecology and so i look at things that way all the time ever since i was in school for it and i look at the world and i'm like man i'd be a lot i mean you can't do it because you can't right but if i was to look at this as a as a manager there's so many things that you know that it could be done and we could be in a way better place but obviously we can't do that because you can't like i said you can't go Culling bad guys yeah. and you know, getting yeah. rid of getting rid of the weak and whatever. But yeah, yeah that's very uh, yeah. What do you call it like uh, Hitler way of looking at things? You know. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, well, man, I want to appreciate you coming on. Uh, thank you for coming on, and appreciate you coming on. Um, where can our listeners find out more about what you're doing and uh, and follow yeah. along with you? <clears throat> well. You know, you can always follow me on Instagram. That's Chef Jean, J-E-A-N underscore Paul. Um, I do a lot of different content on there. Um, I answer a lot of questions on direct messages, on comments. So if you ever have any wild game or just rel- just basic cooking questions, I'm happy to get to them if I can. And uh, so go ahead and Chef Jean underscore Paul. That's J-E-A-N underscore Paul on Instagram. Um, I have six spices on Spiceology. If you're not familiar with Spiceology in general, the company, the direct-to-consumer spice company out of Spokane, Washington, by far the freshest, uh, most well-done single spices and blends on the market. I have no doubt about it. And um, I have six blends. Um, One's a wild game blend. One's a fish and seafood blend. And I have four sausage blends uh, that you can use all your wild game with and so on. And last but not least, you can always find me on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. Season one of Duck Camp Dinners is has is out. That was we filmed that two years ago, and it came out on Meat Eater's channel last year. And season two we will we be will be out in August or maybe possible early September when we start gearing up and getting that that uh, that early teal season fever. Uh, and so season two of duck camp dinners out later this summer. And that's, that's where you can find man. Like whether it's social media, social media or meat eaters, YouTube channel, 
I'll be there and um, doing my best to represent, you know, all of us that love to be in the outdoors and, and cook what we kill and catch and just be very thoughtful about, you know, what we're doing with all that protein and, and honoring it. And because it, it, you know, it gave its life for us to, to feed our families and we should do our best to, to honor in that way. And that's kind of that, that whole lens of how I like to cook and think about all those things, all those animals that I get my hands on in the kitchen and just trying to be really thoughtful about how I use them. So um, if anybody has any questions about cooking and wild game, you can find me on there, uh, especially on my Instagram. Awesome, man. Thank you very much. Appreciate you. Love what you're you're doing. I appreciate the time. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, John. All right. Take it All easy. Right. Yes, sir. Bye. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out daysinthewild.com and be sure to give us an, a review on iTunes. Thank you, and we'll check you out on the next episode.